listening to season four, episode five of Vixen, a black beauty and pop culture podcast. If you enjoy what you hear today, please leave a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. Today's episode is the story of the legendary singer Phyllis Hyman. Now, let's start the show. Hey y'all, welcome back to a brand new episode of Vixen. So before we get in today's episode, I just want to go over a few things, a little business, a little news. So um, by now you guys would have seen that we announced the August book for the Vixen book club, which is The Perfect Find by Tia Williams. I'm so excited about it. One, because I've heard great things. It's won a few awards. It's apparently very, very good. Um, and then on top of that, it is now being adapted into a, I don't know if it's a movie or a series, but either way, it's being adapted for Netflix as we speak. I believe they are filming right now. Whatever it is, a movie or a series is going to star Gabrielle Union and Keith Power. So that's really, really exciting. Um, if you are not a part of the book club yet, you can go to my website, thevixenmemoirs.com. You'll find it down in the show notes as well. Um, put in your name, your email address, sign up, and you will get a free PDF link to the book for the month. Um, and you'll also get emails about when our meetups are. We have them on Instagram Live. You can come in, join, listen, share your thoughts on the books that we read. Speaking of the Vixen Book Club meetups, we are having one for our July book on August 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for last month's book. Last month's book was The Story by Asia King, which inspired um, the Zola movie. If you guys have not seen it yet, I highly suggest you do. It was so funny. So good. Loved it. Um, And yeah, I think that's pretty much everything as far as news. Now, let's get into today's episode. So y'all, this episode is really, really important to me, not only because I am a fan of this woman, but also because this is a story that deals with mental health and a lot of other issues that Black women face. Um, I think it's really, really important to talk about these things amongst other Black women. Um, I know very well that people of all races and everything listen to Vixen, but I do know that the majority of my audience is Black women. So this is a story that I absolutely wanted to share with y'all. Another thing to mention before we jump into Phyllis's story, I just want to give my listeners a trigger warning if you are sensitive to the topic of um, mental health, specifically depression, bipolar disorder. Um, there's going to be a little bit of drug use being mentioned as well as we are going to touch on a bit of abuse. Um, so I just want to give you guys the proper trigger warning. As I'm going through the story, I'll try to add some more trigger warnings just in case um, if you still want to listen along. But I do want you guys to know that there's going to be some sensitive subject matter in this episode. So I just wanted to make sure I let you guys know and brief y'all on that. So let's get into the story. In the 1930s, Philip Hyman migrated from North Carolina to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, alongside his two brothers, Samuel and Edward. He soon enlisted in the army, leaving Philly behind for North Africa during World War II. When he got back from the war, 28-year-old Philip started working in Samuel's barbershop in West Philly. One night while out at a club, he met Louise Lively, a 26-year-old working as a waitress there. The two quickly fell in love and Louise became pregnant, so they married right away. 
Their first daughter, Phyllis Linda Hyman, was born on July 6, 1949, cancer queen, period. Um, shortly after Phyllis was born, Philip got a new job on the railroad and the family relocated to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, settling in the St. Clair Village section of the city. Over the next few years, six other children were born, making Phyllis the eldest of seven. Built in the early 1950s, St. Clair Village was a public housing unit with mainly poor residents. Um, it was initially built to help ease the displacement of residents who were coming from downtown Pittsburgh. Uh, downtown Pittsburgh at the time was having like a little bit of an urban renaissance. So, you know, this typically happens in larger cities, like as the downtown area becomes like more vibrant and like oh, it becomes a cool place to hang out at. They start to tear down anything that takes away away from that vibe and start building new things. So um, a ton of poor residents were displaced from the downtown area and St. Clair Village was built to ease that. The projects were torn down in 2010 and they are now being turned into an urban farm. And I just wanted to mention that when I, cause when I looked it up, I was like, this is what always happens. So one urban thing comes, right? like a neighborhood like downtown. So they're like, oh no, this is cool. This is hip. We got to get the poor people out, right? Then they move the poor people and then they're like, no, now this area where we've put them is cool and hip. Now we got to get them out again and build an urban farm. But anyway, I digress. Um, one thing to note though, the St. Clair village, when the Hyman family was living there, and I believe throughout the entire time it was in existence, there were no stores there, y'all. No stores. There was no commercial business at all and it was also like it it's at the top of a hill so it's very very isolated it's isolated from other areas of the city and the closest grocery store uh was miles away it was about three miles away from the area um and one thing about poor families as i'm sure a lot of you guys might know um a lot of them do not have their own cars or they, or they don't have stable transportation just want to reiterate the fact that there's a lot of like not only just like geographical isolation happening there's a lot of social isolation happening here because you're on top of a hill away from the rest of the city and um when people build when when cities build these public housing units like they know exactly what they're doing right they would rather it not be downtown once you know a downtown area becomes cool and there's a lot of people and tourists down there they would rather have you like on the top of the hill isolated from the rest of the city where no tourists would ever need to come up there because there's absolutely nothing there because there's no stores no nothing so i just want to make sure y'all remember that about st Clair village around the time the third hymen daughter Jeannie was born Louise started to suffer severely from depression, resulting in her sending Jeannie away to live with an aunt. After about, I want to say three years it was, Jeannie ended up coming back to live with the Hymans in St. Clair Village. Here's a quote from Jeannie about what life was like in the household at that time. When you have a severely impaired caregiver, lots of little things just don't get taken care of. When I came back into the household, to me, it was utter chaos. It was nasty. It was dirty. The kids were unkempt. There was no order. I couldn't believe people lived like this. End quote. So mind you, because remember I said Phyllis is the eldest of seven children. So there were more and more kids being born. And Philip, the dad, he was not in the house because, you know, he worked on the railroad. So he was always gone. Um, so he couldn't help out around the house and he couldn't help his wife through her depression. Um, the Hyman kids were often, you know, just unkempt. Like Jeannie said, they did not have regular baths. Um, their hair was not combed a lot. It was just very, very sad. Here is a condensed quote from Phyllis herself about 
growing up like this. We were a below middle income family. We were rich in human areas. We didn't have material things, but I didn't miss them either. My parents, I felt, were not obligated to give me things. Money can't buy a moral attitude. End quote. Remember, y'all, it's the 1950s, approaching 1960s at this time. So the understanding of mental health was very low, just around, you know, mainly the general public for the most part. People were very ignorant. So Louise's illness just absolutely went unchecked at this time. Phyllis herself couldn't understand her mother's behavior, um, and neither could her father. Her father had started to verbally abuse um, Louise when he was home, and Phyllis kind of started to do the same thing. Um, Here's another quote from Phyllis. I didn't respect my mother's opinion. I thought, what has she done? Had seven children? I never had to carry a key when I was growing up because she was always home. I always thought I didn't want to be like that. That woman didn't ask for enough. There was a whole world out there, end quote. With this loneliness coming from her husband being gone and the isolation of just living in St. Clair, as well as having so many children to take care of, I think Louise just felt very, very deep into her depression. And of course, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor or anything like that. So I can't diagnose anyone with anything. But it sounds a lot like Louise was suffering from postpartum depression, which I think would be a pretty fair analysis. 2019 Archives of Women's Mental Health conducted a study called Postpartum Depression and Social Support in a Racial and Ethnically Diverse Population of Women. So the study found that Black mothers are much more likely to suffer from postpartum depression than their white counterparts, and that close to 40%, 40, let that sink in, 40% of Black mothers will suffer from postpartum depression Um at some point, which is more than double the rate for the general population. So that is insane, y'all. Here are some of the factors that they found play into uh, Black mothers suffering from PPD. Um, Most of the factors are just socioeconomic status and racism. So here's the ones that they listed. Lack of access to high quality medical care, higher risk of pregnancy and childbirth complications, um, lack of social support, Gaps in medical insurance, financial barriers, unsafe neighborhoods, increased stress. So Louise suffered from many of these factors. And unfortunately, mental illness is a theme that will pop up again throughout this story. Thankfully, around the time Phyllis was going off to high school, Louise was um, diagnosed with depression and she was prescribed Valium and a few other um, medicines that weren't listed. So she did start to get a little better. And from what I read in the book, Strength of a Woman, I highly suggest y'all read the book. It's amazing. But in the book, the author, Jason Michael, he interviewed quite a few of Phyllis's siblings. I can't remember which one said it. I think it was her younger sister, Kim. She said that the... Um, older Hyman siblings had a different experience with their parents than the younger ones did, specifically with Louise, their mother. Um, she noted that like around the time they started to come up, Louise was getting better. And also like younger kids are just more affectionate um, and more needy than older ones. So, you know, they kind of like brought that love out of their mother and she was getting better at the time. So Phyllis's sister was just like, you know, we had a little bit of a different experience. We did notice sometimes that she was like empty and blank, but we did have those loving experiences with her that the older siblings didn't get to have. 
Phyllis started ninth grade at Carrick High School, an integrated school in the primarily white neighborhood of Mount Oliver. She was very popular, very well liked. Um, she competed in the intramurals. She joined the student council, the human relations club, and she sung in the chorus. So there was a music teacher at Carrick named Mr. Tambury, and he instantly noticed that Phyllis had an amazing voice. Like she definitely stood out from everybody else. And he encouraged her to sing and take her voice seriously. Now, Phyllis had always kind of known that she could sing, but she just didn't really like to draw too much attention to herself. And she didn't like being watched, uh, which I can definitely relate to as a cancer. Um, so she knew she could sing, but she was just like, you know, something that she did in her room alone. But when she first heard the singer Nancy Wilson on the radio, she knew that singing was what she wanted to do with her life. Um, she joined the very famous Pittsburgh All-City Choir, and she started singing in local talent shows as well. And every time that Phyllis was in a talent show, she was sweeping. Okay, she was killing the competition. And they interviewed so many people, and they were like, listen, if you, if Phyllis was performing... They already knew you're losing. If Phyllis is on, you are going to lose. You might as well not even get on stage. So again, Phyllis was very well liked, popular. She was known for her fashion sense. She was just like a very glamorous girl, you know. Um, and also you just couldn't miss her. Like she was beautiful and she was like six feet tall. So, you know, boys weren't necessarily interested, interested in her. I mean, they were probably intimidated by her height. Y'all know how high school boys are. But Phyllis honestly did not care. She knew that a boyfriend would probably lead to you know getting married and having children and from what she witnessed of her parents relationships she was just like I don't want that here's a quote from her I wasn't dainty like the other girls guys never followed me around I never experienced being a girl I was always a woman I was one of seven kids and I knew I didn't want to be a mother of seven children I wanted to be a working woman an independent woman and not have to depend on a man. However, in 1967, Phyllis met her first boyfriend, Richard Wall. Richie, as he was known, was fresh off a tour in Vietnam and Phyllis herself was fresh out of high school. She joined a singing trio called The Sounds of Ebony and the group performed locally throughout Pittsburgh. Mr. Tambury, her old high school music teacher, had just been offered a position at Robert Morris Business College to spearhead their brand new music department. He accepted the position with Phyllis in mind, knowing that he was going to offer her their very first musical scholarship. There were some changes going on in the Hyman household as well. Both Philip and Phyllis moved out of the family home in St. Clair. Phyllis moved to another neighborhood with his new girlfriend, Willa. So he left Louise and Phyllis moved into her very first apartment. Louise's mother, so Phyllis's grandmother, moved in with the family in St. Clair to help Louise out now that she was a single mother. Phyllis did decide to attend Robert Morris and the Tamburis kind of took her in. Um, so not only was she working with Mr. Tamburi in the um, college's choir, he also picked her up on the weekends for voice lessons his wife and him um, found someone to like a dentist to fix Phyllis's teeth I don't think there was anything really wrong with her teeth I believe she just needed caps on the front or something like that um, and his wife would like take her shopping and buy her new clothes and she was always saying um, you know Phyllis just had a great body and she could wear anything so I think the wife just like loved to dress Phyllis up so they really took her in they also would take her to clubs in the city to perform such as the, the little windy club I believe I'm pronouncing that right and the Crawford Grill. After a year at Robert Morris Phyllis dropped out and started to work as a secretary. She was still seeing rather frequently whenever she was asked to perform and at this time she did start to develop a little bit of a bad habit 
Um, she started to be chronically late, which we will see reappear in other stages of her life. Um, the second habit she developed was a little bit more detrimental. Um, so trigger warning for anybody who's sensitive to drug use. It's not too crazy, but just wanted to add that. Um, Phyllis did start drinking, um, smoking weed, and using pills quite often at this time. Here is a quote from Phyllis's boyfriend, Richie. Phyllis was an escapist. She liked to get away from things. I think in retrospect that she was just depressed. I think she could have had everything and she would have still had the same problem. I think she was just a depressed person that was genetically predisposed to it. 1969, Phyllis was asked to perform at a charity benefit, which was attended by Dick Morgan, a musician who led the career of a group called New Directions. So the group was a foursome, a quartet, um, and they kind of did what I guess would be called like mini residencies throughout the country. So they almost were like on tour. So they would get booked at the best lounge in whatever city they were in, and they would stay there for a week, maybe two weeks, and then they would move on to the next lounge in the next big city. So they had just lost their singer and when Dick heard Phyllis sing he was blown away he asked her to join the group immediately and Phyllis was like bet she went and she quit her secretary job and she went on a residency tour with the group first she had a little bit of a hard time getting used to just being on tour and being away from her family but after some encouragement from her father it got better and Phyllis started to feel like okay I can do this um, music is a real thing and I can have a real singing career Here's what Dick Morgan had to say about how Phyllis was on tour. Her talent was so effortless. It took no effort on her part to do what she needed to do to create those vocal and visual effects. I would let her make all the announcements about the tunes and the songs and the intermissions. She would enter her own little brand of humor, which would fit sometimes and sometimes it didn't. I let her do it because I felt like her honesty and sincerity was going to come out. End quote. After about six months on the road, bookings for New Directions dried up and the group was sent back home to their families. Phyllis went back to Pittsburgh and she started to work as a babysitter. Um, after about eight months of doing that, she auditioned for a new band called All the People and she instantly got the gig. Before she knew it, she was sent off to Miami to perform with the group full time. In Miami, Phyllis performed with all the people, of course, that's why she came, but she also began to work with a ton of other local groups and she started to book some solo gigs of her own. One of those bands she started to work with in particular was called the Hondo Beat and they had a residency on a Caribbean cruise ship. So Phyllis would often join them on this cruise ship and that is where she met Larry Alexander, a professional cruise ship singer. When these two met, there was an instant connection there. They were very physically attracted to each other, but they were also kind of like mentally drawn in. I don't I don't know if it's an artist thing, but it was kind of like a magnetic attraction. So you know how earlier Phyllis was like, she never wanted to get married. That was just not a path that she wanted to go down. Yeah, that changed when she met Larry. <laughs> the two of them started talking about getting married just a few months into dating. In 1974, Phyllis decided to start her own group, Phyllis Hyman and the PH Factor, enlisting Mark Egan and Billy Bowker of the Hondo Beat to join her. Later, three of their friends, Hiram Bullock, Howard Schneider and Clifford Carter joined and the rest was history. Band became very popular in Miami kind of fast and I think it was because they played a wide variety of music like they would do samba, they would do funk, they would do jazz. Um, so they got like a little bit of a cult following and a really really good reputation around the city. So they booked regular gigs quite often and they would also get like residencies at different clubs too. One thing that Phyllis herself was known for was her creativity. She could improvise, she would come up with these random 
a monologue. She was just like a very, very fun entertainer to watch. And you'll see that throughout her career, even as she gets older. Here's a quote from Hiram, the band's guitarist. I don't think many people realize just what a creative genius Phyllis was. She was a creative genius at the order of Miles Davis. Y'all hear that? He's comparing Phyllis to Miles Davis. Um, Phyllis was more creative than she ever even realized. Phyllis would do like these monologues on stage, but she would often do this monologue where she would get into a really long, just like spiritual kind of talk with the audience, especially after the band performed a song called The Creator Has a Plan. I feel like the this I feel like this spiritual kind of like speech she would go on shows a lot about who Phyllis was as a person, not just a singer, um, and also just how she was feeling at the time. So I'm going to read one of them to you guys. When you're a kid and over and over again, the creator is called by so many different names, the Lord, God, Jesus, the Messiah, Allah, sometimes even the man. That confuses you when you're a child. It has to because you don't know. But as you grow up, and you begin to give very heavy consideration to just who or what the creator is and what relationship that being has with you, then you begin to ask some very serious questions. One, is the creator a man or a woman? Is the creator black or white? Asian? Indian? Exactly what is the scope? Being practical, being sensible, looking at it from all angles, I had to arrive at the feeling, at the thought, at wanting to believe that the creator is not a man, is not a woman, is not black, nor white, Asian, or otherwise, but a mass of very positive, loving energy that each of us has to cup from daily. We cannot survive without that energy. We need it to live. We use it every day, whether you go to church or not, whether you want to believe or not that the energy comes from it, from that, from everything. End quote. But this time, things were going pretty well for Phyllis, at least on the outside. The band stayed booked. It brought her two youngest brothers down to Miami for the summer. Larry was on a little break from the cruise circuit. Life was good. Um, they even got better as 1975 comes around because Phyllis finally gets signed. So here's how it happened. Sid Moore, who heralded art direction at Columbia Records, and Fred Frank, a promoter at Epic Records, were out one night at Cahoots in Fort Lauderdale. The two of them had ventured out on their own and started Roadshow Records, which was quickly gaining traction. The PH Sound had a regular gig at Cahoots, by the way, and they just so happened to be performing when Sid and Fred came through. So Sid and Fred heard Phyllis sing, and they knew instantly, like, we need to sign this girl. So in 1975, Phyllis and the rest of the band signed to the Roadshow Desert Moon imprint. I don't think Larry was Phyllis's official manager at this time, but he did start pulling some strings for her using his connections. Um, he actually hooked Sid and Fred up with George Kerr, a producer who he felt could really help cultivate Phyllis's sound. So George had just had had this big hit in 1969. It was like a multi-million dollar track. So I don't think he had done anything since, but you know, he was kind of a big name. So they were excited and they were with it. Um, Larry and Phyllis flew to Georgia's studio in New Jersey where they recorded an upbeat five minute long disco track called Leaving the Good Life Behind, which was released via Desert Moon, of course. The song was rather successful. Like I feel like the stats are successful for the song, 
But it just wasn't really a crossover hit. And I believe that's what Desert Moon was shooting for. So they were a little bit disappointed. The song reached number nine on the Billboard disco chart, but it just didn't connect with other audience, I guess, because it never reached the pop charts or like the black singles charts, which had its own separate chart, y'all. But yeah, it just didn't have that crossover appeal, I'm guessing. The label didn't lose faith though. Phyllis and the band locked into a studio in Miami Beach and they recorded a ton of new songs together. So even though they took this time to kind of regroup, Phyllis nor the band were really happy with the direction the label was taking them in. So keep in mind, y'all, we're in the 70s, so it's disco, baby. Like, that's what's in style. That is what made the big bucks. Um, but if you know anything about this time, like, as we get to, like, the mid and late 70s, disco is on its way out. Um, and, but at the time, Sid and Fred really thought that it was only right to have Phyllis move to disco because that was what the people wanted to hear. Oh, I don't know. I do love Phyllis's disco tracks and like the disco inspired tracks, but my favorites of hers are her slow ballads personally. Um, I feel like they should have just like taken one listen to her voice. I feel like if I was them and I heard her sing, I would be making her like a crooner. Like she would be like a jazz star or something like that. I don't know. I think they should have just known from the way that she sung that she wasn't going to just be a disco star. We needed more, okay? She needed more. That voice deserved more than that. So confused about their next move, the band was offered a week-long gig in Belize and they accepted it gladly. This is where Phyllis was like, okay, this isn't working. So if I want to be a successful singer, um, I need to take matters into my own hands. So Phyllis was like, okay, this sucks, so we're going to put ourselves in front of other industry folks that can help us, cultivate us, do something, because we got to make some shape. So on December 21st, 1975, Phyllis, Larry, and the entire band moved to New York City. Hey y'all, so I know we're all excited to come out of this pandemic and get back to our regular lives, but let's be honest, we've been through a lot these last two years. You might feel like you need to step back, reassess, process it all, set new goals, or just talk to somebody. I was feeling the exact same way and I just had my very first session with my new life coach, Tola Maria. I ain't gonna lie y'all, I was nervous, but Tola made the space very comfortable, I felt safe, and I felt like I could be open and honest. Although she made me comfortable, she did not hold back y'all, she definitely told me about myself. But it all felt really constructive. I got some good tips. It was definitely eye-opening and very much needed. Having a life coach is something that I think black women can truly get a lot out of. So I've partnered with Tola Maria Life Coach to offer my listeners 12% off their bulk sessions when they use my code, FIXIN. You can use this code on her website, which will be linked down in the show notes. And you can find her on Instagram at tmarialifecoach. That's T-M-A. R-I-A Life Coach. And don't forget to use code Vixen and let her know that I've sent you. The band settled into New York pretty quickly. Phyllis and Larry stayed with Larry's brother, who actually was a pretty famous jazz player. His name um, is Monty Alexander. So they stayed with Monty on the Upper West Side, and the rest of the band went to a house in Westchester to live. The very next day, they booked a two-week gig at the Russ Browns, a short distance away from Monty's apartment. 
On their opening night, they were a huge hit, mainly doing covers, but also they did like some of their original tracks and they jumped from genre to genre. So this was really important to note about this band because that is what made them stand out and that's what got Phyllis to be so popular in New York City because they jumped from different genres and that wasn't a thing in New York. So Russ was a jazz club, so mostly people only did jazz there and a lot of the other like New York bands um, who were on the circuit, they typically stuck to one genre. So PH doing different types of music, that's what really drew the New York music scene into them and they started to develop a following quite quickly. They did so well that Russ management after their two week gig, they're like, okay, like stay on. We want you guys to keep going. So the band, they really didn't have a plan when they came to New York. Like Phyllis was just like, let's go and see what happens. But it wasn't set in stone that they had all relocated. So once they got, you know, the, the deal from Russ and Russ is like, we want you guys to come back and stay on. They're like, okay, bet. So they had two days to go back to Miami, clean out their apartments, pack all their belongings and get back to New York. Phyllis, even at this time, like Phyllis is, it's crazy. Cause it's something that you'll see throughout the story. She never can believe like how much people love her music. So even at this time, she couldn't believe her luck. She had no idea why so many people were coming to hear her sing or why people were so interested in her. One of the people who came to Russ to hear Phyllis sing was Norman Connor. Um, Norman was a drummer who had at one time been a part of Miles Davis's band. I think he was with him for seven years. Um, he was coming off the success of his wildly popular album called Saturday Night Special. So basically he would like collaborate with other artists and create you know albums it's kind of this is so this is such a funny comparison <laughs> but basically his albums it's kind of like what DJ Khaled does except Norman was a drummer so it's essentially the same idea um, he had worked on a duet with a singer named Gene Karn, and that song had done fairly well. Um, so he wanted the two of them to get back together for a new project, but Gene had just signed to a label, and that her label was not about to let her do duets with people outside of their own roster, which is quite typical of some labels. They want all of their artists to have features, um, you know, in house, so they weren't about to let her do that. So Norman was like, "Oh my God! Like now, I got to find someone else." So he was on the hunt for a new singer and he had found one in Phyllis. Norman wanted Phyllis to re-record a stylistics hit called, guess what? Betcha by Golly Wow. Now y'all, why Phyllis did not know the song? Yes, she did not know Betcha by Golly Wow. <laughs> so it's funny because for someone who at this point has been in music for years now, Phyllis never really listened to the radio and she didn't own a record player or anything like that. So she rarely knew what was hot at the time other than what was happening like in the clubs that she performed in. So that was like her only like way to see what people were into. So she just did not know the song. But um, anyway, she agreed. She went to the studio and she recorded the song in one take. And Norman said that Larry was brought to tears. <laughs> honestly I probably would have cried too if I would have heard her because if you hear her version it's so good um so I can't imagine hearing that live so I probably would have cried too Phyllis wasn't the only person that was getting offers from industry insiders um the other members of the band were as well by early 1976 their New York fan base had continued to grow and they had moved to another jazz club called Michael's don't get me wrong Russ had a pretty big clientele I think they had some famous people that frequented there as well but Michael's was really known they had a big star clientele um, one by one band members started to just like fall off especially once they got to Michael's and they were like on the radar of even more people 
Aram took a job with saxophonist David Sandberg. Billy just wanted to go back to Miami. He probably was so over the weather. Um, Mark Egan and Cliff Carter were going on tour with the Pointer Sisters. So the band essentially fell apart and Larry was like, I got this. Let me get to work and put together a new one. While Larry was putting a new band together, Phyllis did an interview with the Associated Press, um, and the article was called Phyllis Hyman, Remember That Name. So this particular piece, it did not necessarily put Phyllis on the map per se, but it definitely stirred up conversation about her and it helped to build a bigger buzz. So she already had buzz, of course, but this one, it was just more of word of mouth because she was performing on the jazz circuit, which is kind of like a, you know, if you know, you know thing. So this, especially being published, it raised her profile a lot. Norman Connor's newest album, You Are My Starship, featuring Phyllis's version of Betcha, was released in 1976. Soon after, his label, Buddha Records, brought out Phyllis's contract with Desert Moon and she signed to them instead. So let me say that a little slower so you guys get it. So Norman, who she did Betcha with, right? He put that song, the newer version, on his newest album, right? So then he was like, okay, we want to work with Phyllis all the time. So he took, he brought out her contract that she already had with Desert Moon and Phyllis became a part of Buddha Records. Norman had just become the new musical director of Buddha Records and they quickly got to work on Phyllis's debut album. Now, just to add, you know, a little bit of nuance, Sid and Ken from Desert Moon say that it didn't happen like that. There was no buyout. Like there was no like agreement or anything like that. It's just that Larry came to them and said Phyllis wanted to leave. So they just let her go. I don't know if I necessarily believe that because like, why would they do that? But that's what they said. The first solo album, it was self-titled, it was called Phyllis Hyman, was released in 1977. The album reached number 107 on the Billboard 200 chart, and one of the singles, No One Can Love You More, charted at 58 on the Billboard Hot Soul Singles chart. So here's the thing about this brand new record label, Buddha Records. So before Phyllis even got there, they were already kind of down bad, you know, like in the sense that they weren't really breaking any new artists or really doing anything for the ones that they had. So Gladys Knight was signed there at the time, but I think her career was sort of stagnant when she was with them. She definitely wasn't happy there. Um, and then they also had Melba Moore at this time, but she was the only person that was doing relatively well. And I don't think anyone else was doing anything at that point. So that's just important to note that like the label was kind of, they weren't really doing much. Um, and then Buddha released a second Phyllis Hyman album in early 1978 called Sing a Song. However, no songs from either of these two albums cracked the top 20. Um, of course, this could have been for a variety of reasons, but it seems like Buddha really dropped the ball here. Like it might have been like a lack of promotion. Um, they also really didn't have any producers on their label at the time. So you know how like there's usually a lot of hype, even still today, around albums depending on which producers um, the person worked with or which features they have. Yeah, so like they had none of that. So her albums, like it's just, there just wasn't a lot of buzz being generated around either one of them. So they did kind of drop the ball. Um, another thing that hurt Phyllis while she was on Buddha, and this might come across as a good thing, but yeah, I guess it is and it isn't. They gave Phyllis and Larry, because Larry, you know, Larry was all up in the mix. Um, they gave Phyllis and Larry full creative control over both albums. Um, and although that's great for most artists, Phyllis wasn't very well versed in recording music. She had been in music forever, of course, but as you guys know from what I said, what I was saying earlier, 
is most of her experience came from like just performing. She hadn't had much experience with recording anything. I haven't listened to these two albums in full, but I'm thinking that Buddha letting them have full creative control, it probably made the album just not very cohesive. I'm assuming that they have a variety of like different types of music because that's what Phyllis liked to do. She liked to jump from genre to genre and do different things. So maybe it just wasn't cohesive. Maybe it just needed like a more expert touch. Here is a 1977 review of Phyllis's first album in stereo review. Her producers have wrought a miracle in reverse by managing to make her sound like just about everyone else. An obvious attempt to popularize her sound in order to sell her to a broader pop soul audience, her enormous talent has been shaved down to fit sound-alike songs with banal lyrics and repetitive arrangements, end quote. So definitely a scathing review, definitely not a review that anybody would want to hear for any reason. Um, Phyllis kept busy though. She toured heavily throughout the release of both albums and her publicist, Barbara Shelley, she went into overdrive, honey. Okay. She really went into overtime. This is when Phyllis started to become really known on the social scene because Barbara made sure that Phyllis was at every party. She was always around the who's who, all of that. And I mean, she's just very beautiful, very, very striking woman. And Phyllis was so you know she was getting photographed everywhere and it was you know helping to raise her profile so the second album which was actually produced by Larry it did way better than her first one um, but it's unfortunate though because by the time the second one came about Buddha Records was literally falling apart as in they were barely staying afloat financially so that's why I was saying remember like only, they only have one artist that's kind of doing well. So I'm pretty sure they were not breaking even or barely breaking even. Um, Gladys Knight was leaving and that was like their biggest star. Um, Gladys Knight was leaving. Her contract was up and none of their other artists was really faring well. It was just her and Melba Moore. Uda bailed themselves out by selling the imprint to Clive Davis and Arista Records, which was brand new at the time. He had just started it up. He had just left Columbia Records and started Arista. Phyllis was promptly transferred over to Arista. Um, normally we would be like, yay, this is great because she's on a bigger label, but mm, not really in a way because Phyllis was still signed to Buddha and her contract was nowhere near over, I'm assuming. The deal that was worked out with Arista was that Phyllis would come over there, no questions, and she would have no say, right? Because Gladys was leaving Buddha, that was going to be their selling point um, for Clive Davis. Like, hey, you're going to have Gladys Knight. But since she just was leaving anyway, there was nothing they could do. Um, and Phyllis was like their, their second choice. Like that was who they were basically like bartering with him for Phyllis. Um, and she just had no say in it because if it didn't go through, like, they, I don't know, they just really, their entire livelihood depended on the deal. So she just had no say. Um, and from what we know of Phyllis, y'all already know that's not going to work. Like Phyllis was a woman that, you know, controlled her own destiny. So she was pissed. Um, also it bothered her that she would be on such a large label, um, because she'd have a lot of label mates and it would just feel like way less of a hands-on experience because she wasn't at a small independent label anymore. She did get a nice advance and she got a way bigger budget to make the music that she wanted to make, but she just wasn't happy that no one talked to her about it. And I totally understand that. Same year that Phyllis came on board, Arista released her third album, Somewhere in My Lifetime. So many of the songs that were on her second 
second album were put onto this third one, which is great because that album was actually pretty good. It just didn't get the attention that it deserved. Um, and also just a lot more thought went into the album. The newer songs were good. And overall, Phyllis was pretty happy with it. Um, more happy with more happy with this album than she was with her previous ones, but she did feel like she just could have done more. Um, here's a condensed quote from Phyllis. To me, the album represents progression. It shows growth. Although I will say I don't think anyone has captured the true essence of what I'm about in the studio yet. Not that I'm unhappy with what's there. It's just that I feel with more time, I could do so much more. End quote. So mind you guys, like they don't really go in depth in the book about like why she's feeling this way sometimes. Um, but mind you, I just want to let you guys know, like, remember that she's churning these albums out. It's like hotcakes, y'all. It's like three albums in two and a half years. So I just want you guys to think about that, like, and try to like put yourself in her shoes. And then also from this quote, it sounds to me like she didn't have as much creative control at Arista that she did at Buddha, which makes sense because I'm assuming larger label, like they're definitely going to want to make sure that you um, have a return on investment, especially with so much budget behind you. So I'm assuming it just wasn't as, you know, she couldn't be as creatively free as she had been. And then also with just, you know, the albums coming out so quickly back to back, it kind of reminds me of, um, Rihanna, like when Rihanna was putting out an album every single year. And that's why, like, I don't, I'm getting a little bit off topic, but that's why I'm not mad at Rihanna for waiting years to put out another album like what anti came out in 2016 or something like that let that woman have a break she was putting out an album every year for like it had to, it was at least three years it probably was like five or six so rihanna deserves a break and i totally get this with phyllis like she these albums are coming out so quickly also that year on september 18th larry and phyllis were married officially in coral gables florida at a very small ceremony Although Larry's mother was there, none of Phyllis's family was in attendance. And it's not that they didn't support the union, y'all. It was because they all thought that they were already married. <laughs> so apparently, like, Phyllis's family thought that she and Larry had been married for years by now. Like, they had no idea that the two of them were not married. And it's funny because one of um, one of Phyllis's sisters, I think it was Jeannie, she was saying, like, um, if we knew that they were married, we would have not let them sleep in the same room. <laughs> it's just funny. Like, she just really kept a secret from them. But, yeah, everyone thought that they were married. I think um, the media thought so as well because when she talked about him in press, she always called him her husband, not her boyfriend or fiance or anything like that. So I guess if somebody just keeps calling somebody their husband, you're going to assume they're married. You're not going to ask no questions. So yeah. After the album's release, Phyllis went on a 30-city tour with Peebo Bryson to promote it. And this tour was a huge success, y'all. It was sold out in every single city. Um, you know, her, but she was truly like a star at this point. And as soon as this tour ended, Arista wanted her to get right to work on her next album, which was called You Know How to Love Me. This album performed fairly well, just like the last one did. It made the R&B top 20. Finally, she, she makes it to the top 20. Um, and it performed really well on the charts, the singles did. Um, to promote this album, she did a TV special called Phyllis Hyman, A Sophisticated Lady, alongside Bobby Caldwell. It's basically like a 50 minute, like, singing infomercial and this was 
really popular as well. So here, as you guys see, Phyllis is really starting to like make a mark in music. She's coming into her own. And at this point, the 70s are kind of coming to a close. And it's, it's interesting because Phyllis kind of spends this entire decade building herself up, doing the work, like hitting the jazz circuit, performing, doing like the hard stuff. And now she's finally getting to like reap the benefits um, and just be more in the limelight and do more recording. So let's get into the 1980s. As the 80s came right on in, Phyllis was gaining an even bigger fan base. She was performing constantly, which is something that she does throughout the entirety of her career. She always performs multiple times a week. Um, she's getting more and more attention in the music industry. It's looking good. She and Arista did start to have quite a few creative differences at this time, though. Um, and it did cause a little lapse in her recording career. Like she wasn't doing new music as often, but she did not let this dim her star power. While she was in limbo musically, she filled her time. Um, she was doing jingles for uh, Burger King and a bunch of other companies. She was on TV shows. Um, she was working with Barry Manilow, The Whispers, The Four Tops. Like she was really doing her thing. In 1981, Phyllis joined the cast of Sophisticated Ladies. That was a Broadway musical that was dedicated to Duke Ellington. She got her first solo R&B top 10 song out of that musical too. The song that she performed was called Can We Fall In Love Again? For her performance in Sophisticated Ladies, Phyllis snagged a Tony nomination for Best Supporting Actress in a Musical, and she also won Best Newcomer at the Theater World Awards that year. She also got her very first Jet Magazine cover, which is kind of a turn of events that I definitely wanted to make sure that I mentioned because it was one of the first times that she spoke publicly about depression, more specifically about loneliness. Here's a quote from that cover story. I'm not ashamed to talk about it because I think that maybe people don't talk about it enough and they're suffering inside. I really want people to know that what they think and read about entertainers' lives being so glamorous, hell no. That is far from the truth, especially for female performers. Men seem to be in awe of you and feel you can't be approached, end quote. So as you guys can tell from the last sentence, it's kind of like, hmm, what's going on here? Because she is with Larry. But no, this is actually the first time that she like loosely, like, acknowledge the fact that her and Larry had separated. So this story is a turning point. One, because she talks about depression openly. She talks about her separation. Like she kind of alludes to her separation. But another reason why this article is important because Jet framed the story as like a very, very sad, like, I don't know, just tale of loneliness and a woman who really, really wants to be with a man. In the book, it said that they went with that angle because they felt like Phyllis wasn't a big enough star for a Jet cover story at the time. So they kind of just like harped on what she said in those areas and kind of made the entire story about that, which is kind of just like, I, I mean, I don't know. I kind of feel like that's in a bit of poor taste. I guess it is honest. A lot of women do, you know, crave romantic partnership and it's very, very important to them. But I just find it weird like to interview somebody about their career. And of course you want to get into their personal life a little bit, but to frame the entire story around like, you know, being sad over a man or loneliness around a man is a little unfortunate. And I feel like this is probably something, this is my opinion, but I feel like, this being this story is probably what framed Phyllis as like a very lovesick woman and if you know anything about her you know like that kind of followed her throughout her career of course she sung a lot of sad songs about heartbreak and things like that but this jet story I think it just really put um the public eye onto her loneliness and it kind of just really 
cemented that. So this jet story is kind of a turn of events a little bit. So the following year, 1982, Larry and Phyllis's divorce was final. Um, it's not said what exactly led to their divorce or their separation, but it is implied in the book that the marriage was a little bit tumultuous. Um, in the book, both her brother Mark and her former musical director, I forget how to pronounce this guy's name. I think it's Onage. Um, but yes, both Mark and Onage gave quotes that the relationship was verbally abusive on Phyllis's part, but it's not very clear what the last straw was for the couple. From speculation, it feels like Larry was just very, very involved in Phyllis's career. And I don't want to make him sound like, you know, it's definitely not, not like a Ken Do and Mary J. Blige situation, I guess. No, it wasn't like that. Larry had his own career throughout the entire time that he was helping um, Phyllis out, but he just had a lot of control over her career being her manager, he was producing, and he was also her husband. So I can see there being a strain on the relationship when your partner is so involved in your entire life like that. Like they don't, they didn't really seem to have a separate, you know, identity from each other. And that can be hard. So. They broke up, the divorce was made final, and it's said that this is when Phyllis started to use cocaine um, just to cope with her emotions and the divorce, and this habit sadly stayed with her for the rest of her days. So Phyllis was already known around town because she's insanely talented, she's famous, she's beautiful, she's glamorous, she's fashionable, like she was already a staple at parties, but after the divorce, um, she did start to go out more frequently and she was only doing three things, y'all. Performing at eight shows a week, mind you, recording and going to parties. So performing, recording, partying, that was all she was doing. Um, so you can already imagine what it's like when that's all you fill your time with and you're using drugs on top of it. It just was not good. Um, people around her, especially the cast of sophisticated ladies, um, a lot of them were either doing it with her or they were very, very concerned about her. One of her castmates said, when Phyllis was freebasing, all that mattered to her was her high. She would use her stash until she was exhausted. She was incredibly self-destructive. She had demons that could not be controlled. There also started to be a few incidents where Phyllis was just a little erratic. Like one time she went off on her crew members after one of her shows. I think one of them like misplaced something or touched something of hers. Um, she missed out on playing Shug Avery in the color purple because of her behavior. Um, I'm not really sure exactly what happened. I think it was at like a, a table read or like an audition or something, but like she acted out and she missed out on that which would have been huge like can you guys imagine Phyllis Hyman as Shug I definitely can like that that's a role that would have been absolutely perfect for her I wonder how she would have done in that role she was also diagnosed with bipolar disorder around this time it was just a really hard time in general um, just as she had back in Pittsburgh she was self-medicating with alcohol weed and now cocaine those around her said that she spoke openly about depression, having suicidal thoughts, and the insecurities that she had that were brought on mainly by failed relationships and not feeling like she belonged. I read a study that I want to share um, with you guys, just something that I thought was interesting that they found. So the study is by Tamara Nelson, Naisha, Naisha N. Shahid, I'm sorry, um, and Esteban Cardamil, and it's called, Do I Really Need to Go and See Somebody? Black women's perceptions of help seeking for depression. So here's a quick quote from that study. We identified three themes that informed the help seeking process. A, 
You should see somebody. I just would not. B, do I really need to go and see somebody? And C, self-care despite what others may say. With regard to the influence of the strong black woman role, we also identify three things. A, masking or ignoring pain. B, inability to ask for help. And C, lack of self-care. Our findings emphasize the importance of considering how the strong black woman role may be associated with help seeking for depression among black women. End quote. So I shared that with you guys because I do feel that, you know, nowadays, and I wish that Phyllis was still here with us to see it, we've seen a big push in therapy um, for black people and the importance of mental health in the black community. Um, and I think a lot of black women are doing the work to go to therapy, to talk to somebody, um, to see somebody about how they're feeling. Um, but I still think there's a little bit of, like the study said, that strong black woman role. And this study was done in 2020, I believe. Um, you know, we still have that going on. Like we might suggest to somebody that they should go see somebody, but we wouldn't necessarily do it ourselves, like they said. Or we might find a way to self to do some self care or to self medicate, like Phyllis did. Phyllis um, chose to use, you know, drugs and alcohol. Some people choose shopping. Some people choose food. Like we do things like that in order to mask the pain, as they said. So. Um, I think that black women just being seen as just being strong and res and resilient and things like that, it doesn't help us to um, play into that stereotype. A little off subject, I'm sorry, but um, me personally, like when people refer to me as like a strong black woman or any kind of thing of the sort, I'm like, nah, I'm weak. Like, nah, I'm a flower. I'm delicate. No, dude, don't even speak that on me. Because I don't want any of that being placed on me to where I feel like I can't seek help um, where I need or I feel like I need to push through when I'm feeling a certain kind of way. So I want to just say to all of my listeners, if you feel like, you know, you need to just talk to somebody and sometimes just venting to a friend or family member is enough, but sometimes you need more. And I just want to say to y'all, I'm not going to like go in. Um, because it is a sensitive subject, but I do want us to seek help and feel comfortable about seeking help. I feel like a lot of us are doing so much better than we used to, even just like three years ago about seeking help and looking for those things. And, you know, um, with Phyllis talking openly about mental health, not only to those around her, um, but also in interviews and stuff, it, that was huge in the eighties and nineties. Like that, it was a big deal that she did things like that. Um, and I just wish that she was still here with us to see that push for um, mental health in our community. But let me get back to the story. Phyllis's career was still thriving despite it all. She was doing a lot of features at this time. She was touring very often. She was doing residencies and she even went on a college tour just giving lectures to students. She was riding off the high of sophisticated ladies which had just ended after a 22 month run. That's a great run for a Broadway show. Um, she appeared in a few movies throughout the decade such as Too Scared to Scream, The Kill Reflex, and of course School Days. Um, she also released a new album called Goddess of Love. And this album, I believe it did fairly well, but this is kind of where things come to a head with her and Clive Davis. I touched on it a little bit, but, you know, she wasn't really happy being at Arista. Um, and she just really was not happy with Clive Davis. I think the two of them just clashed. And to me, you know, with her signing at that time where, like, disco, disco was kind of in limbo, um... 
they didn't know what was next. I feel like Clive Davis just didn't really know what to do with her at that time. Um, and he kind of just put her on a shelf. And somebody like Phyllis, who's coming from doing all these different genres of music and is so talented and able to jump from song to song like that. Like, I think sh the two of them, they clashed. They didn't get along. And he just was really clueless about what to do with her. So they had a lot of creative differences. So she just was not happy working with him. So she did not have an enjoyable experience at Arista. This album, like she kind of just wanted to take matters into her own hands. So Phyllis hired a new manager, Glenda Gracia, and she got a new fashion designer, Cassandra McShepard, to take her style to the next level. So as I mentioned earlier, Phyllis was already very, very fashionable. She was known for like her hats, her accessories, all of that. And Cassandra really elevated this further. Um, and she just made beautiful clothes that just complemented Phyllis's body and her stature and all of that. And like the, a lot of the iconic photos of Phyllis come from this era with working with Cassandra. Her star power is just like rising, rising and rising because now she's got like this amazing look. She's super fashionable. They're talking about that. And she already had like a really dynamic, very charming um, personality. So she was just, you know, she was like the darling. People loved Phyllis Hyman. Um, so let's fast forward to 1984. Arista had just signed Whitney Houston and they released Phyllis from her contract. So sadly, they let Phyllis go once they got Whitney Houston. Um, and this really hurt Phyllis, you know, even though she wasn't happy with them and she really didn't get along with Clive Davis. She was hurt by this. She was upset by it. And she just felt hesitant about like how she was going to move forward in her career. She didn't know what she was going to do next, what was next to come. And I think she just felt like nobody kind of understood what she needed and where she needed to take her career. At this time, she was still struggling. I'm sure being let go from Arista did not help. Um, she had a little bit of an unstable home life because like her relationships would end really quickly. She had um, a lot of mood swings and there were just days where Phyllis just could not get out of bed. Um, her weight would fluctuate all the time and that was very upsetting for her. And mind you, she was not taking medicine for her bipolar disorder. So just to say, just from like people that I've researched, I do know that around this time, People who were diagnosed with bipolar disorder were mainly being prescribed lithium, which I've heard has severe side effects and make, made people feel really bad. Nowadays, there's a lot better medicine on the market, but that one was like the main one that people would get and it definitely made people just not feel good. Um, so those around her urged her to go into rehab and she entered in 1986. Um, around this time, uh, upon her release, she got out, she started to take her medicine and she signed to the legendary Philadelphia International label. 1986, she released her next album, her very first one with her new label called Living All Alone. So that is an amazing album, y'all. That's the album with Old Friend on it. I love that song. It is a classic. Um, this album reached number 12 on the R&B charts and it sold 500,000 copies. And then she went on a very huge tour to promote it. That tour was also sold out. So it was like, you know, Phyllis was back at it. Phyllis Simon was back. She was back in action. It's on an amazing high at this point. Her career had come back. Um, she was doing extremely well, but her behavior behind closed doors was still very alarming to her close friends. Um, she also did start to have a little bit of problems with her voice, I think, at this time. Like, she could still sing. It's just her voice got a little deeper, and I don't think she was able to hit some of the notes that she used to hit. Um, you know, which I could see being very, very depressing to someone who, you know, 
their voice makes them a living. Um, she wasn't using cocaine or drinking as much at this time, but she was now using pills to self-medicate. She had unfortunately introduced pills into it um, because she didn't like how the medicine made her feel. And I'm pretty sure it was lithium that she was taking, y'all. Um, in June of 1990, she overdosed on sleeping pills by accident. And that was a really scary situation. The person who found her as she was going through this overdose, like when she came to again, they said that she was really, really happy to just be alive. She checked into rehab again in 1991, but friends say she started drinking immediately upon her release. Phyllis's next album, Prime of My Life was released in 1991, and this album spawned another one of her major hits, which was Don't Wanna Change the World. This song reached number one. This is also a really good song. I love this song too. So if you guys don't know this one, it's almost like a um, rap dance song. It kind of reminds me of Sounds of Blackness a little bit. It's a good song. Um, it definitely shows how things were like changing throughout the 90s, like songs got like more a beat, you know, less ballady, a little bit of dance hit, some a lot of rap influence was going on, even for people who weren't necessarily rappers. So, and it kind of just showed Phyllis in a new light, and it, you know, it showcased her brand new sound. This album had a series of follow-up hits. There were like three or four singles after um, Don't Want to Change the World that did very well, and it was certified gold just a few months after being released. So this was her biggest album yet. Um, and this is also the album that she got the most radio play from too. Unfortunately, Phyllis's personal life continued to spiral. Both her mother and grandmother unfortunately passed in 1993. In 1994, she had an injury on stage that left her stuck in bed for weeks, um, and she started to have some pretty serious financial problems at this time. Sadly, due to all of these factors, Phyllis relapsed again. She did get herself together for a little bit and use a little more sparingly um, because she had to return to New York City um, to she did get it together a little bit and start to use a little bit more sparingly because she had to go back to New York City to prepare for her show at the Apollo. Um, and she was doing quite a few shows in between that. So this is a little ominous, y'all, this story. Trigger warning, trigger warning. Um, in April of 1995, Phyllis had a show with Regina Bell. Um, and Regina Bell went back to the dressing rooms just to visit Phyllis and like see what she was up to. And she says as they were talking, there were two books that were right smack dab in the middle of the table. And both of those books were about death. It was June 30th, 1995, the day of the show at the Apollo. Phyllis's assistants arrived at her Upper West Side apartment to wake her up for her sound check. After letting themselves in, they realized her door was locked from the inside. They broke the door down and found Phyllis unconscious in her bed. She was transported to Mount Sinai, where she was pronounced dead at 3.50 p.m. It was only one week before her 46th birthday. Sorry, y'all. This part is really, really hard. So another trigger warning. Phyllis had died by suicide. She had overdosed on a mixture of vodka and tunnel. Tunio, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's best. It's basically a sleep medication, so like sleeping pills. Um, she did leave behind a suicide note, which I am going to read to y'all. I'm tired. I'm tired. Those of you that I love know who you are. 
may God bless you. Phyllis's family, friends, fans, the entire music industry, they all reeled as the news of her death spread. Um, Here is a quote I want to share with y'all from her former manager, Glenda Gracia. My theory is that she finally hit that wall that she just didn't feel she could go through. Phyllis always felt that suicide was an option for her. We talked about it all the time. I know it was something on her mind. She had tried it twice before but hadn't succeeded. She would say to me, life was too much work. I always hoped she could reach a space where she would really, truly have the desire to heal herself and manage her illness, end quote. On July 6, 1995, that was Phyllis's 46th birthday, family, friends, and fans held memorial services in Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and New York City. That November, Phyllis's next album was released posthumously. That album was called I Refuse to Be Lonely. And listening to that album of hers, although every single song is amazing, um, and I believe most of them were co-written by Phyllis herself, a lot of those songs are very emotional. And it's another thing that just feels ominous because um, she apparently recorded these songs right before her death. But it is a very beautiful, very well done album. And if you can listen to it, I highly suggest that you do just let it play. Um, three years after that, in 1998, another posthumous album was released, a compilation album called One on One. And this was a compilation of her previously released songs and some duets and some features. It's kind of like a greatest hits, um, but with some other songs, um, that, that she had done. Um, that same year, Forever With You came out, and that was another compilation album with a few unreleased songs from her. And then in September of 2007, Strength of a Woman, The Phyllis Hyman Story, which was my main source for today's episode, um, was released in cooperation with Phyllis's estate, and it was written by Jason A. Michael. And that is the Phyllis Hyman story, y'all. I just... <sighs> This was a very emotional one for me to write because I do feel a very close connection with Phyllis Hyman. Um, We share the same sign and just like her music, not only is her music amazing, it's relatable. And um, just to hear her story the first time I heard it, I was shocked. I was floored because I was just like, you just really never know um, what people are going through you know, and you cannot judge a book by its cover. And as lively and fun and beautiful and glamorous she was on stage and off stage, you know, you just don't know what happens um, behind closed doors or how people truly feel deep down inside. And it's just so important for us, our community, and to all my listeners, you know, it's very important that we prioritize our mental health and, you know, we get help when we feel like we need help. So I will definitely have some um, mental health resources down below in the um, show notes, the description of this episode. Um, And yeah, I just, this is definitely something that I want to talk about more, these kinds of issues that our community faces um, and how sometimes like that strong black woman um, stereotype, it works against us. Honestly, I feel it works against us quite often. Um, more often than not rather, but it's just something that, you know, we have to talk about more and I'm just, I really appreciate the push, 
um, towards, you know, just mental health awareness in the black community, especially with black women like y'all, y'all are truly doing the work with that. And I love to see it. Um, but I definitely wanted to share this story because I feel like it might be something that a lot of my listeners don't know about. Sorry, y'all getting a little choked up here. Oh goodness. But I really do hope that you guys enjoyed this episode and I want to just end it on a little bit of a happy note. I'm going to make sure I clip, I get some clips uh, spliced together just of her on stage um, so you guys can see a little bit more of her personality. She has some funny interviews. I got to try to find some of them on YouTube so I can like add them and put them and post them on the Vixen page. I'll post them on there. Um, and also just, you know, how she was, she just was a really charming person. People loved her. Um, I've heard that people loved going to her concerts because she always interacted with the crowd. It was just fun. Even if she was at like a larger, um, you know, venue, she still found a way to like make people feel really comfortable. Like I was watching one of her performances a while ago where she asked the the audience, she's like, have y'all seen me before? Like, have y'all, have y'all come to see me before? And people are like, yeah, yeah, I have. Um, and she's like, okay, great. I can take my shoes off. (laughs) And they all bust out into laughter and she really takes her shoes off. Um, so yeah, you know, and then, um, something else that I'll tell you guys another funny story. So my mother actually knew Phyllis Hyman. They had a mutual friend, Um, And my mother moved to New York City in the 1980s. And this mutual friend that they that both her and Phyllis had, they this woman did not know how to drive at all. So I I would say their names, but I don't know if it's okay for me to say their names, so I won't. But this the the mutual friend I'll just call her the mutual friend the mutual friend did not know how to drive right and Phyllis was like she was pretty much a a big star but my mom said that she always like hung out and like walked around normally she never made it a big deal or anything like that but she said that Phyllis had just got this really really nice like red shiny sports car I don't know if it was a Corvette axe my mom was like I can't remember it was a sports car so she, um, Phyllis had just got this red sports car and like they were all hanging out. It was four of them. So, um, the mutual friend, Phyllis, my mom, and another friend of theirs. And Phyllis is like, okay, like just try to drive. So the mutual friend gets behind the wheel. <laughs> she doesn't crash, but I guess every, she does something. Maybe she swerves or something. And everybody gets so scared. And she's, my mom said that when Phyllis would cuss somebody out, it was hilarious. <laughs> like, you know, so. <laughs> I can almost imagine her cussing somebody. It probably sounds like she was singing to them. (laughs) But she said that Phyllis flipped. And she was like, I was so scared that she was about to wreck Phyllis's new car. (laughs) So, yeah, I just wanted to end on a little bit more of a more pleasant note. I know that this one was a rough one. Um, but I'm glad we got through it. I'm glad that, you know, we got to talk about it. And if you guys want to talk about anything, feel free to DM me on Instagram. If you just want to get something off your chest, you can also email me at vixenpodcast at gmail. Um, and I will definitely make sure I have some mental health resources down in my show notes. Um, and I promise next week I will bring the mood up. I promise. Like I'm I'm not, I can't do y'all like that. I'll bring y'all back up. Um, next week for sure. Uh, love you guys to the moon and back. Thank you for listening. And I will see y'all next week with an all new episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to Vixen. If you liked today's episode, don't forget to leave a review. 
If you have a submission, feel free to email vixenpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back next week with an all new episode.